0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer... Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Let's talk a little about sequels and franchises, okay? It's a big part of the horror movie experience these days. Yeah, there are comedy and drama sequels and remakes, and big-budget comic book movies are all about creating an entire cinematic universe. But the horror franchise is the pot at the end of the rainbow. Scary movies don't require big stars or big budgets, they just need to get under your skin or make you jump preferably both. Sometimes the same story gets told over and over, or sometimes it's just a title that justifies a movie's existence. I can't count how many Halloweens or Hellraisers or Saws or Nightmares on Elm Street or paranormal activities there have been, but it's a lot. Honestly, I haven't seen most of the sequels once you get up into the higher numbers. But someone has... And there is an appetite for more, or they wouldn't keep making them. One of the longest-running horror franchises was created by a 23-year-old film fanatic who was born in Libya, but raised in the L.A. suburb of Long Beach. Don Coscarelli found himself with a tiny budgeted movie that has been embraced from the time of its initial release in 1979, through its many sequels and restorations, and maybe is even more loved today than when it came out. We'll talk with him about how it all happened and where it's going. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. Well, Don, you and I have known each other for a long time since I was working publicity at AVCO Embassy after Phantasm had been released, so it was like 1980 or so. Phantasm came out in 79. You were very young then, but it was your third feature film,
1: right? That is true, yes. Number three. And that was a crazy time, by the way. Uh, You know, AVCO Embassy doesn't really get enough credit. You know, you were there at the beginning, and... uh, you know, it really was the original house of horror. Yeah, for the 80s, definitely. Yeah, and they had a run there of about four or five years when all of our good pals had movies that were really successful and they made a lot of money. and uh, Well,
0: yours it, was first. Then there was John Carpenter, The Fog and Escape from New York. There was The Howling from Joe Dante. Yes, There was David Cronenberg uh, with Scanners. So all at that time that I was there was like the most exciting time and your movie kicked that off. Well,
1: what was wonderful about them is that it was a lot of old school distribution guys who really had this mantra about showmanship, you know, <laughs> that showmanship is not dead. And they didn't have the money necessarily to buy uh, television exposure, which was the popular way of marketing probably still is. And so they consequently uh, had their talent tour relentlessly. And so they had sent uh, myself and uh, the star of Phantasm, Angus Scrim, to practically every viable city in uh, America. And so we uh, did these tours. And they would also, at that time, I think they were releasing regionally, uh, because I think they had 500 prints. And so it started in the southwest, then moved to the northeast, and then to the southeast like that. So then you could track these tours through there. And uh, it was an exciting, fun time.
0: Well, that really made an impression on you because I know you've done that same process with Bubba Hotep and with John Dyes at the end where you travel around with Bruce Campbell uh, on, on, on Bubba. Well, look, it's all about marketing.
1: There's no question, you know, if you want to have uh, any type of longevity in the business that you need to be able to market your product. And uh, I think the, the really cool thing is the fact that we're both blessed to work in this uh, horror sci-fi genre. And, uh, you know, with fans who are, uh, really, uh, excited to participate. And so consequently, there's a very eager audience out there that's very welcoming and even back in the late 70s there you would find these writers at some of these small little newspapers who would just be horror geeks and want to really push you over the the big stallone movie opening that weekend you know well,
0: the horror fans really love to embrace and own their genre
1: they absolutely do yeah for sure and so um uh, yeah, you know, listen, we're, it's wonderful to be part of
0: it. And well, you made your first feature film at the age of 19, and that was uh, the introduction of an actor that became more familiar by another name other than Rory Guy. Um, So tell us about how that came together. You're a 19-year-old director with a movie being released by Universal Studios, for God's sake.
1: It was a crazy time, um, and it was rather unprecedented, and I certainly had no... uh Clue as it evolved, what exactly was happening and how. And this
0: was not a horror film.
1: No, no. It was a, a film called Jim the World's Greatest. Uh, it started off uh, almost as a studentish project. Uh, uh, my neighborhood friend and I, Craig Mitchell was his name, we had written a screenplay when, you know, like the last half of high school and we had this uh, screenplay that was a bit of a melodrama set in a high school. And then, uh, you know, we tried to figure out, well, how could we make this into a feature film? And the only way was that I went to my father and I begged him to put up $25,000, which was a lot of money back yeah. then. Okay. And he uh, had had a good year in the stock market and he <laughs> said, well, what the hell, we'll get. We'll try a movie investment. And so he put the money up and uh, we were uh, completely out of control. And probably by the time the movie was finished, he had had to cough up about 50, 60,000 to get it done. But the the great part about it is is that we were able to find an excellent cast. I mean, we really spent months upon months doing open casting calls. I don't know if you're familiar with these things. We would put little ads in the back of the Variety Trade paper or even in the Los Angeles Times and call anyone to come down and read for our part. And we'd sit there for days on end reading some really ridiculously bad people and luckily, um, this young guy from Catalina came in as an actor named Gregory Harrison, his first role. Wow. And he was, you know, a really talented guy and you uh, a really natural actor. And then uh, at one of our, I think we had rented a room at the, uh, I guess it was the Century City Hotel over
0: there. Oh, uh, the Century Plaza. Plaza
1: Century yeah. Plaza. And Angus came, uh, his real name was Lawrence Rory Guy, came in and read for the role of this uh, guy and he was uh, he was terrific but the the way that he got into a, a horror film after that was because he was so intimidating to me because <laughs> you know i was a young guy it was the first actor i had ever directed and i can still remember standing there with uh, my co-director craig and there'd be some problem with rory angus's acting and he'd go you go tell him, you know, because I'd go up there and I would say, "Well, you know, uh, Angus, we're we're feeling like that maybe you're uh, overacting. Well, maybe that's a little Ooh. too
0: yeah, stupid <laughs> for a 19-year-old yes, to the say." the stupid yeah. kind of things to yeah. an
1: adult actor, you know. And he would uh, just affix me with this stare, and he would raise that eyebrow, and he would essentially give me that you know, boy, like, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I'd always back up in in terror, and so I knew that one day I'd put him into a. Uh, my dream was to put him into a pirate movie or a horror. Film.
0: Film. Was horror your first passion? Did you just want to be a filmmaker, or did you want to specifically go into this genre of darkness? Well, uh, the genre of darkness—that's uh, <laughs> a good description.
1: Uh, hey, Mick, I think that one of the one of the weirdest things, most interesting things that came out of these uh, these wonderful uh, so-called masters of horror dinners that you have held with some of the great horror directors uh, in working now is that when I talk to my fellow horror filmmakers, I am stunned. It's almost as if there was this insidious plague among all of us. Because no matter where we lived in our teenage years... Remember, there's no internet. There, you yes. know, you couldn't find anything. Somehow, all of us had gotten to a newsstand found famous monsters and purchased subscriptions to it.
0: <laughs> I couldn't afford a subscription, <laughs> so
1: every month I'd get that magazine and I'd see, you know, a, a digest of what was happening in horror. I, I hadn't seen maybe I'd seen one of the movies that would be in there, and it'd be so tantalizing, so exciting, and so strange and different from my normal suburban lifestyle it just always appealed to me i just just always loved that
0: well lifestyle. you were born in libya but raised in long beach which is kind of a suburb of la
1: yeah it i didn't spend a lot of time in uh libya my father was in the air force and uh for some reason he decided to take my mother there to have me in this fourth world country, um, but we were living on a, an air force base there, and uh, my, then migrated around the country, and I did end up in Long Beach, which was a perfect uh, breeding ground for a filmmaker because um, you know I was far than enough far enough away from Hollywood to not suffer the fate of some of the people that I knew who grew up and went to Hollywood High and (laughs) all that whole drug scenes and all that stuff, but uh, close enough where I could drive up there and had access to um, labs back in the days when you had to develop your film. When
0: there were labs.
1: Yeah, and camera rental and uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, a lot of acts and great movie
0: theaters, you know, so uh, it was really a, a perfect proximity for a young filmmaker. And so how did Phantasm come to be? I mean, you're, you're best known for Phantasm because there have been five Phantasm films. Uh, you know, what was the genesis of that? The, the movie is not a standard narrative. It really is subterranean in a lot of ways. It's subliminal in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's kind of like Argento dream reality in, in certain ways.
1: Well, look, I had, uh, obviously there were a lot of movie makers that, uh, were great, um, uh, influences on me. I mean, I remember in eighth grade, I saw 2001, a space odyssey, which shares a lot of those, uh, attributes that you just mentioned, uh, in terms of, you know, not really explaining everything and, and, and being subliminal and requiring a lot of thought, um, and then, of course, uh, a lot of the great horror movies, which I loved, all of them. You know, starting from the Golden Age, you know, of the James Whale movies up through the the Alien Invasion movies, like Invaders from Mars, and so these were a lot of influences. in literary, you know, Ray Bradbury, Frank Herbert, you know, a lot of a lot of you know, real cutting edge writers that were access accessible to me as a young man to read, but. Uh, you know, truthfully, I uh, don't want to get too highfalutin there. Make, it really was a commercial decision.
0: Really? Well, yeah. that was the question, you know, yeah. was it I can get into the world of horror movies without having movie stars or I can do this based on concepts and visuals and, and, and shared universal fears and then do other kinds of things or it, you specifically went into it because of a love of genre?
1: Uh, you know it I stri- strictly went into it because I needed some sort of commercial success i know this sounds really um ridiculous Not when anymore. i say that but uh the thing was is that i i had made jim the world's greatest on a on a really tight budget it was a it was a very independent movie uh, a movie that's filled with uh Flaws, of course, <laughs> as as every movie I've ever made, you know, of course, Mick, we, yeah, we yeah. say the same things as that the filmmakers are cursed to watch their films and all they watch are the flaws. Yeah, uh, but uh, in any case, it was a very, a movie of its time, you know, because I was completely inspired by the, you know, the greats like, you know, Bogdanovich and. Uh, Bob Raffleson with Five Easy Pieces. So it really was just a character study. And then when I made my second film, was called Kenny and Company, which amazingly, we were able to get 20th Century Fox to pick it up for distribution. And it was a very simple movie about uh, three boys around Halloween. It was just a slice of life of uh, you know a couple of days in the lives of average kids told from the kids point of view and and i really like that movie a lot but both of these movies they would get to the studios and they really had no idea how to market them if if there was a way to possibly market these movies uh, in in their defense and so consequently each film would get a couple of weeks in a test market it would fail and then that would be the end of that because back then, in those days, there were no supplemental markets. There was right. no uh, home video or that. So it was there like was
0: TV, but if it, if you'd never heard of it, it was never going to, to play on to television. Play, yeah. yeah,
1: it, it uh, might play on the Z Channel. But
0: that would be about it. <laughs> if you were lucky. So, so
1: the problem I had is uh, I made these two films, and they had just evaporated and mm-hmm. just gone away. And uh, and I don't know where this came from. I don't know if I read it in Famous Monsters or. I heard it from somebody, they said that horror movies are always successful. You know, that's just a very uh, potentially lucrative market to work in. And then you tie that in with growing up with famous monsters and um, my love of genre and horror movies. Uh, well, it's perfect. My next movie, I'm making a horror <laughs> film, you know. And so I just had this vague notion of how to do that. And uh, a, a, a general concept, which was uh, that I wanted to set a horror film in a uh, funerary environment, in a mausoleum, in a mortuary, with all that those icons of, of that trade. You know, you've got the black hearses, you've got the, the marble corridors of the mausoleums, you've got caskets and ornate funerals, a lot of great production value. Mm-hmm. Um and uh
0: and Angus Scrimm.
1: Well and that was the challenge then. It was to find someone who could l- be an evil character who could lord over this. And uh you know, so I wrote this character of this the tall man who uh might be a figment of this kid's imagination and might not. But there are elements to the story, you know, some of them you know, influenced by invaders from Mars had this great subplot of a kid who had Martians had landed in his backyard and no one in the town believed it. I love that element. So the I thought. Boy who cried wolf. This yeah. Sort of thing. Exactly. And, uh, you know, cause so often, and especially even in phantasm, You know, your youthful protagonists usually do know what time it is and what's happening, (laughs) and no one listens to them. And so it's a real unnaturally underdog story. Yeah, 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 exactly. A a real durable uh, angle. Uh, So at any rate, I had this notion of a kid who was seeing strange things up at the mortuary, evil undertaker up there. And then, you know, the process of making the film, it just took some surreal turns. I, You know, I sure, a lot of it, Yes, was my artistic genius, Mick. <laughs> but you know some of it was uh, you know happenstance. Flukes, you know, like I, I'd had this dream about a this being pursued down corridors by a chrome sphere, and so that was the dream, you know. And I thought, so well, that came out of a dream. Now yeah, yet. one of the very few things. Now, Mick, have you ever taken an, an
0: an idea from one of your dreams? And I rarely remember my dreams, but the one time I did. It was the basis for the short story of Chocolate, which became my first Masters of Horror. And I dreamed that I experienced killing someone, putting a knife, a butcher knife into them, feeling the blood running down my arms, but it wasn't me. And that became the plot of the centerpiece of violence in Chocolate, the Masters of Horror film. I
1: remember it very well. And it was yeah. a really a great sequence and... Uh, Nice, but at any rate, my point was is that's the only time I've really ever taken something from a dream
0: and put it into a movie. But so powerful. I mean, you worked as you were saying, you were using all of these icons of fear. But you created a brand new icon with the silver spheres. I mean, nobody had ever seen that before. And I still look at this $250,000 movie and wonder, how in the hell did you do that?
1: Well um it's just a function of breaking things down into their elemental parts and you know to so you want to create this extensive sequence where a sphere comes flying and chasing a boy yeah to do that all in one shot good luck but you could get a sphere to round a corner just by putting it on a piece of fishing line on a fishing pole and whip (laughs) it around you know it'll be in an arc and you just have Mm -hmm. to cut before it you know, the arcs up, arcs up, yeah. <laughs> you know, as far as uh, getting the ball to actually fly, that was one of the. See, this is where I'm. Where I, the point that I was trying to make was that you know I had these visions of of, of of making these things work, but some of the practical, the happy accidents that happened on the set caused them to be really memorable scenes. Uh, For instance the ball flying we could never figure out how to get the ball to fly i tried a number of things where we would t- stretch a piano wire really tight it was really dangerous you know like a 50 foot stretch of it you know and put a a, a hole in the center of the sphere and try to fling it down and it just it looked <laughs> stupid had another idea where we we're going to put a model rocket engine on the back of the thing <laughs> and shoot it and that didn't work and then um somebody i don't remember who just said well just Chuck the damn thing, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, one of the, uh, our art director, David Brown, uh, had been a junior college baseball pitcher. So we got him a couple of <laughs> rubber versions of the ball and he got behind camera. And I, you know, I think back then, because we're working in film, we had to reverse it. Mm. So. I think we actually had to turn the camera upside down. And then you'd
0: flip the film once it comes back from the volume.
1: Exactly. The only thing that us older guys who actually work with film would know. (laughs) So the, the camera's mounted upside down, high speed, and Dave threw the ball. And then it turned out that when it came back and we watched it, it was just like magic. Because the thing is, is that when you throw the ball... It's, it's maximum velocity is when it goes by camera. Right. And then it's slowing as it gets, to, as it's falling towards the ground. So then when we reversed it, so it's kind of coming at you slowly, but it's always speeding in, up. yeah, speeding up and then whipping right by camera. And, and we uh-huh. hit the sweet spot, which I think was 60 frames per second that just gave it this, you know, ethereal floating but flying feel so that's how we got that i'll give you one more story which was another happy accident involving the same art director dave brown so for the close-up shot where the drill is supposed to drill into the guy's head we had had this really nice rig that we had this uh wonderful hollywood special effects guy who uh, named will green and his main stock and trade was building the giant turntables for cars for oh, auto shows right. and tv commercials so we went to him and will created this um, basically a device that if the actor could cover the ball with his hands out the back you could have drills and other things going in so we framed it so you just see the front of the chrome but at any rate it worked out we'd start the action on it the drill came out we'd put some makeup on the guy's forehead and the idea was just to start to drill and then there was a little blood tube which would run up through the syringe going into Mm -hmm. the drill bit that would hit the drill bit into that so the point being is that we're filming the sequence and The drill I give the action cue, the drill bit comes out, it touches the skin, it starts to wrap, and just luckily it grabbed the makeup and just started to uh, wrap it up. And it it looked like it was taking the top layer of the uh, skin off. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going like this today to hit the uh, hit the (laughs) The blood blood tube. Okay. And it had happened that some of the blood Material had coagulated in uh, the thing, so he's like going like this and going like this, and it's just tearing off his skin. <laughs> and then finally, when it busts through, there's just a splat, a big but, gout. But then when you watch it, it looks just like it, t- it took his skin off and then popped through the cranial oh, skull, and oh. that's why it had that impact. And so I, I wish I could take credit for all of that, but it was some, take credit yeah, for it. Okay. <laughs> take
0: credit. Well, phantasm started in 1979 and it's still going the phantasm ravager just came out so this is uh, what phantasm five right yes uh, but you chose not to direct ravager of all of them that's the only one you didn't direct what what was the thinking behind that well
1: it's because the the way that Rav- ravager evolved was uh, very organic because uh, what happens is is that having made some roman numeral movies also (laughs) yes i have you know that as the roman numeral gets higher the budget gets lower and so uh (laughs) we're at part five now and pretty much you know there was there was very little money and there was really no plan to make a movie uh what happened though is i had been working with this fellow david hartman who um a very talented animator by trade. He'd done the uh, Transformers Prime series and Starship Troopers Roughneck Chronicles and some other, and, and uh, Tigger and Friends at Disney. So, you know, quite the Renaissance man. But uh, what I love about Dave and uh, something that I take to heart and I talk about a lot is that he goes out and he makes a short movie every weekend, and I really admire that, and I still should be doing that practicing my craft but at any rate he made a lot of really interesting bizarre little short movies and one day he came to me he said uh, don let's could we go out this weekend and make a little phantasm short and wow. i thought you know well i hadn't done anything with phantasm for about 15 years and i thought sure let's go let's go do it and i called up reggie banister i said i got this guy who wants to shoot this weekend Would you come out sure we'll go do something and he had this idea from you know so in any case we shot that it was so much fun two weeks later we went back and shot another weekend and we had this little set of sequences that were sort of coming together and i was thinking ah just it wasn't costing much per weekend to get this stuff and i'm thinking oh maybe i'll could release it as a you know a webisode or something like that and i actually had some meetings and there's just no way to get any money out of that you Mm -hmm. know where we could even get budget to finish the thing so in any case um I uh, Dave had helped me on Baba Hotep, my film, and also John Dies. And then after that was over, I just thought, you know, for not much money, you know, which I could actually just advance myself, we could go out and finish this thing that he had started. And so, um, so it was a. I saw it as a fun way to give the fans something that had a little bit of closure, at least closure, phantasm style, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Um, and also, uh, be able to have some fun making a phantasm film with all these actors who I was friends with, but with also removing the, uh, burden, as you know, of the shot list every night before you're shooting. And so, uh, so I helped Dave to make this movie, you know, it was, it was just a load of fun. And, uh, you know, and it was me back there running the blood pumps on the, you know, so
0: I could have the fun part. You of could it, play you know? with the toys and not the it's, responsibility. Exactly. True.
1: Yeah. So it, it was good. It was good fun. And, and it was really nice that the, uh, it got a nice reception from the fans and, uh, it got some really nice critical notices. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it fits nicely into the shameless plug coming, uh, phantasm, uh, collection, which right. is coming out um, soon, uh, which is all five films and some uh, wonderful uh, other uh, materials in both DVD and Blu-ray. So,
0: Well, Phantasm has had a huge effect on the horror community. Um, and in one person in particular, who's more known for the science fiction community these days, J.J. Abrams decided... He wanted to restore the original phantasm. What? How did that come about, and what was the process?
1: Oh, he, um, well, I had known J.J. for a long time, and he was a, a big uh, fan of uh, the movie. I mean, in fact, I met him years ago, maybe 12 or 14 years ago, and um, he...
0: Well, Larry Cohen said he... Uh, uh, he saw him being interviewed on Fantasy Film Festival. When <laughs> JJ told him he watched him on Fantasy Film Festival, my old Z Channel show. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. No, he's a, he, a real he, fan.
1: Yeah, he is. And and obviously that's I'm sure that that uh, has a lot to do with his success because he he knows the genre inside and out. But it, in any case, um, it, it just came out of a. And uh, I stayed touch with in touch with him over the years, and he was. Um, he had a desire to screen Phantasm over at uh, uh Bad Robot, his company, for some of the people who hadn't seen it. And he called me up, and I said, well, I got this standard deaf DVD and this scratched-up old print, but sure, if you want to. And he couldn't really believe that there were no high-def materials, and, you know, we were in in the... At that time, it was in the end of its license period with another distributor, so they were they were in no hurry to, you know, you know how sometimes right. the movies will just sit there in the last couple of years. They just let it lapse. Yeah, and so um, at any rate, uh, Bad Robot, I uh, had a great, uh, you know, JJ was so nice and uh, introduced me to his head of post production, a guy named. Uh, uh, ben Rosenblatt and uh, Ben was very entrepreneurial in nature and figured out that they had a great system is called a mystica uh, finishing system that I think that I, I think they had purchased it or they anyway, they had one and they used it on all their big pictures and um, a lot of times it was just sitting there. And so, uh, you know, I'd get a phone call from Ben and say, uh, and he also managed to get a, a great, uh, Scanned scan from the original negative through through photochem and... Uh,
0: so you still have all the original elements.
1: Yeah, you know, good thing is I'm a pack rat. You know, <laughs> I've always stayed, uh, I you know, I've kept track of materials. In fact, that's how in Phantasm IV, uh, the way Phantasm IV was made is that um, I had gotten a call from the MGM laboratories and they were closing down And they said, come pick up your stuff. And I'm like, what do you have of mine? But I I remembered we'd done our original uh, Phantasm processing there. And I went one day and picked up a pallet of material. And it had all this uh, A negative and B negative trims of uh, scenes that had been taken out of the first Phantasm. Nice. And so I held on to that stuff. And then when I decided to make Phantasm Four, I was able to grab about 10 minutes of material out of there that helped to uh, keep that budget down. But anyway, the point is, though, is that uh, through JJ's kind offices, they did an awesome restoration of both video and sound of Phantasm. Right, right. surround
0: know. sound and everything. Is
1: yeah, it is, the sound is really amazing. I, I, I think that the you know one of the great successes of Phantasm is the uh, I think is uh, uh, responsible for that is uh, our composers and the music score. You can hear it like you've never heard
0: it. It's so wonderful. Well. There, George Romero for years couldn't get any movie made if it weren't a Living Dead movie. You've got five Phantasm films under your belt. Was that kind of a cage for you? Um, look, it's a blessing and it's a curse, but. Well, Christopher it, Lee always resented yeah. being remembered for his Dracula roles. Oh,
1: yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm okay with it, because, you know, I know that my, my tombstone's going to be the guy who made Phantasm, and I'm, all, <laughs> I'm
0: alright with In that. In 1979.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it Look, as a filmmaker, it's a challenge because you, uh, you know, I would finish a Phantasm movie looking, you know, now I can, with hindsight, look back on the career, finish the Phantasm movie, you know, and I'd probably take a couple of years and I'd write two or three really wonderful screenplays and of of all kinds, you know, I, I, while I, to this day, love horror and love genre, i've got a lot of other as you do Mick. a lot of other interests i mean i i mean i would love to do a straight comedy i would love to do a world war ii film you know i a lot of different things that i i would love to have the opportunity but you know i'd go out and try to get funding for these various projects and uh not have any luck and then you know then there's I, always fantastic yeah, somebody was yeah was mm-hmm. one of the distributors would go hey what about this and i go well <laughs> okay and i'd go back and make one so it, it kept me kept me employed and um, you know working with my friends which was the other yeah. part because i made these lifelong friendships with these actors and we were able to work uh, over many decades.
0: Well, one of the most unique things about your career is that you've always been your own boss, with a couple of exceptions. Um, You know, you did Beastmaster as a director for hire that went on to another couple sequels and a TV series that you probably had nothing to do with. Unfortunately Um, true. Actually, maybe fortunately true. I had (laughs)
1: nothing to do with any of them
0: creatively. But, I mean, you have chosen to raise funding for your own projects and get it done that way and be your own boss. And and uh, you've had opportunities with the success of Phantasm and with the success of Beastmaster. And we'll talk about your other movies that you've made before we talk about the, the Masters of Horror experience where mm-hmm. you were a director working on yeah. a TV show. Mm-hmm. But tell me about that kind of uh, ability to to not have anybody over you and to be able to take the time you need it. Obviously money is an issue, but being your own boss is obviously important to you. And I saw elements of that when you were doing masters of art. Well, it, 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 it's a,
1: a really good point, Mick. And it's, it's, it's been, it's different in some ways, but you know, not, it's not without its, uh, uh challenges and problems. Um, but certainly, I've been able to develop a way of working where which is which is different and and it, and it really came to bear on uh, John Dies at the End I thought well in that uh, my most recent film because as we all know it's very hard to make a movie <laughs> period, <laughs> period. <laughs> okay yeah. and one of the things that has always bothered me and and worked so well in my earlier films as we were so out of control, we would always end up shooting intermittent schedule, where we would shoot on weekends, take the week off, get our logistics together, and then shoot two or three days, take a week off. I actually did that on John Dies at the end. I built the schedule out where I never worked more than four days in a row, and some, some four days in a week, and some uh, some weeks only work three-day weeks. And the trick, of course, is you need a project where – your main stars are cheap <laughs>
0: and flexible
1: and your, your known stars come in for like two, three day periods, right? which that script worked well for. And that's what we were able to have, you know, Clancy Brown and Paul Giamatti and people like Glenn Terman and that. And they would come in and do their thing and be gone. But the the two young guys who starred in the film, we hired them on a 15 week contract. but. Ow. But at it, it, it SAG low budget minimum, so it's right. not that much. So they were happy because they were employed over fifteen weeks. But then you know we would work a three day week and then take two days or three days off, then work a four day week, take three days off, you know that kind of thing. And real not off, but not shooting to then right. get organized, get the effects, get the set right. You're you working,
0: know? but you're not shooting.
1: So that was one of the ways that I, it was helpful. Another thing I've always that's been helpful in my process is, and, and I. I'm sorry if I got... Uh, a little testy about it in uh, Masters of Horror, but I always have to have a pickup day and you were so kind to give me that 11th day <laughs> for that you know,
0: with the reduced crew to fix the problems from the first 10 days and uh, keeping in mind we opened with, uh, we premiered with your episode uh, Incident on and off a of country road yeah. because it was the most powerful opening we could use for the series. Well what, some of the, in the defense of the uh, some of the other
1: folks. Thank you. for That's very nice of you. But some of them hadn't shot there as yet, but, uh,
0: no, but it was, it was yeah. the right show to open with. It's yeah. really scary. It's yeah. really polished. It's really suspenseful. <laughs> Um, I, I, Nick, I loved working on that show. I want to. I have never. No,
1: I'm going to take it here officially to say <laughs> thank publicly. you, thank publicly, thank yeah. you for involving me. With that I look back on it and it was just a, a wonderful experience. It was one of the coolest things was uh, to just be up there at the Sutton Place Hotel and uh, in Vancouver. And, Vancouver in yeah. Vancouver, and you know, Dario Argento would come in after a day of shooting. Don, hi, you know, and. <laughs> You know, and then I came back later, and, 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 uh, John Carpenter was after me, Don. You know, he was, he was right in the middle of pre-production and overwhelmed, I think. Uh, and then the best part was, of course, um, when I arrived in my hotel, there was someone that had left me a greeting card and I thought, oh, Mix left me a card and I open it up and it's these like 10 monkeys in a row with their eyes closed and it was from John Landis. He says, good luck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was an amazing experience, but, but it was different from you because you're coming into what had to be a machine. Everybody right. shoots for 10 days yes. because the next show has to start the next day. Yes. There's no flexibility. We have a union crew. We're building on one stage while we're shooting on another and out on location another. so that was an experience you hadn't really had before absolutely
1: not and, and, and you know the great part about it was a great education for me because I think it really uh, showed me how a TV series operates you know and working with some of the uh, dedicated crew that you had hired around you um, from the Canadian producers the Canadian production uh, managers and ads, and all of that and you know, you really did create a horror factory up there in that <laughs> giant warehouse that you'd taken Hopefully over. one that stimulated the uh, creative process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it was, but it was a nice setup because I remember the prop guy had built a cage there. And even I think I shot my episode three, but he had uh, a big array of material from other shows that he had brought in. So there was a lot to choose from just right there, which was real nice.
0: Yeah, and they were all so passionate about the genre and about the people they were able to work with. I mean, obviously it was a dream for me to work with so many of my idols and Oh yeah. Well and don't
1: forget, yeah, the and the Canadian crews were, were fantastic. Except for one. Um, mm-hmm. but uh,
0: You had a little, a little trouble with one, I won't We're not going to talk yeah.
1: about that. But uh, <laughs> the, what I also want to say, though, is that you, that you didn't slack off in the uh, most important part was makeup effects. And you brought, you know, Howard Berger up there from K&B, K&B yeah. for the duration. They're and doing and Nightmare Cinema for us, too. Are, are they yeah. really? Of course they are. You know, because they are there, you know the when you, yeah and 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 when you need them they will they will help you they're great him and Greg and and Bob
0: are just the greatest so let's talk about doing something that wasn't something from your own imagination um uh, Joe Lansdale, the script for Bubba Hotep was based on a short story by Joe Lansdale and is very faithful to that story. Tell me how that came to be. Bubba Hotep, I think is an amazing movie and maybe my favorite of all all of your work. Thank you so
1: much, Mick. And, uh, and again, uh, let me not go by without crediting Mick for, in the nick of time, saving me uh, my casting with Aussie Davis oh, because Aussie right. had decided he was not going to do the movie, and you were kind enough to send a letter to him saying, "Hey, Don's
0: a good guy; you
1: should work with him." And I think
0: Aussie well, was in the stand for me yes. uh, with his wife Ruby D, and, yeah. and well, I just grew to love those guys. They were they amazing were national treasures, you know, absolutely. And yeah. to be able to work with people like that, and to yeah. be able to say, "Look, Don is a." really talented filmmaker a really nice guy i think yeah. you'll have a great time with him
1: and it and it worked and and Aussie was just uh, you know people talk about how great bruce is in the movie and he is a wonderful actor and he is great but boy that Aussie, you know he was he was playing the you know he he said to me at one time like he came and he says i can't even i'll try to do his an impression of Ozzie Davis, <laughs> but it's something like you know i've he has this very deep baritone voice you know i've I've met many presidents. In fact, I've met President Kennedy. I never thought I'd be playing him. (laughs) I'm thinking with Sam here. (laughs) Yeah, he was so great. But, you know, Joe Lansdale is a true American original. Uh, He's, uh, you know, he's like a horror Mark Twain. Um, And... uh, I just—I read that book, and everyone I showed it to said this is unfilmable. There's no movie here, and I—I I thought there was, and I—I and I, I stuck with Joe and followed it throughout, and uh, so happy to make that. You know, while bringing up the subject, though, Mick, I want to talk about something a little more uh, directly involved with you. Mm-hmm. Is I worked on a project that I didn't ultimately direct, I guess, did I leave the project or was I fired? That's a good question. It's Which always one? in America. It was a Stephen King story called, uh, it was called Cycle of the Werewolf. Really? And it um. was, uh, And I'll tell you a really funny story because I know you're, you're, you're pals with Stephen and I just think, you know, when well, we talk about Joe Lansdale and where he sits, wow, King You know, we all bow before the master. He is Mm. amazing, and I'm so happy that he's just still working and turning out great material. When when he had that accident, that was shocking for those fans of us and to think that he's turned out so many great books since. But that being said, I, I had made this movie The Beastmaster, and for some reason this Italian movie producer, Dino De Laurentiis, seized on it that I would be the... Air to direct the Conan series and wanted me to oh direct Conan Part 2. And unfortunately, they gave me a screenplay that I just didn't get it at all. And I've, if you've seen Conan 2, it's very faithful to the screenplay. <laughs> so,
0: And I had just made the Beastmaster. Maybe that's the reason I didn't see Conan 2. Well, yeah.
1: probably true. Um, but in any case, I uh, I just couldn't, in good conscience, see how I could go to Mexico for months to make another sword and sorcery film without, you know, a script that I felt uh, good about. So I turned down Dino De Laurentiis, which... I think it had an effect on him because, within a month, he came back and he says, "I've got this Stephen King book. I want you to read it." And it was messengered over, and I and I read it. The problem was, is it wasn't a book. It was, it was a, a
0: graphic novel.
1: Yeah. Well, it was actually a calendar at that yeah. time.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: because okay. he had gotten together with Bernie Wrights, and and they had created right. the uh this. Bernie did the illustrations, and and Stephen wrote a paragraph, and it was right. called "Cycle of the Werewolf," and the werewolf would strike on every holiday is a great story mm-hmm. about this. And the only person who knows is this kid who's right up my alley right. and, uh, this boy in a wheelchair and you know, he's, you know, he's got some skills. He's, you know, he's strong upper body strength, but, uh, you know, how's he going to fight this, this werewolf? In any case, so there's no screenplay. And, uh, at the time I was told by Dino that Stephen was not available to write the screenplay. So Dino assigned his translator, Sergio, to co-write the screenplay because I guess I was told that Dino only reads screenplays in Italian. So I had to do an adaptation of the calendar and turn it into a screenplay with the, uh, uh, with this uh translator yeah but anyway, any rate, to wrap this story up and get around to the point is that there were ma- major adaptation problems that we were struggling with and um uh, one day stephen king came to new york to meet with you know about other projects and so i got it was the one time i got to meet him and such a nice guy so you know funny self-effacing just not what you'd expect uh and um he sat there and listened to me just prattle on about how I don't know what to do. How do we solve this problem? How do we get from March to July and where you know all of that? And he said, "Well, I don't have time to write it, but I'll think about it." And so uh, uh, King went away, and I was still working with Sergio on the script. And one day, I got the word from Sergio that Stephen had sent some notes, and he he came running in, and there were three single spaced. Type written pages of notes. And Mick, he answered every problem. Nice. It was like everything. Okay. And so we go in to have a meeting with De Laurentis, And De Laurentis is sitting there in his giant desk. And he's kind of a diminutive man. And he's getting his shoes polished at the time. And he's got these things. And we co- Sergio, I come in. And he's like, okay. And he just throws him over his shoulder. He just didn't oh. get it, didn't want it. And then after that, I ended up leaving the project. So well, that's my King story.
0: Well, that's a great thing to end with. We are going to uh, take a couple of questions that have come in over social media from people who heard you were going to be here. A question from a lot of people from social media and one that I want to know. What's happening with Baba Nosferatu? Well, it's an interesting, tortured history, unfortunately.
1: Um You know, at one time, we had it all set up to go. Um, It turned out that uh, Paul Giamatti was a big fan of uh, Baba Hotep, and he was a very nice, supportive guy, and he came on and was going to help co-produce the movie. Uh, We had the funding set up, and uh, at that time, Bruce Campbell declined to participate, and so the whole thing fell apart it was really unfortunate um, i had a really great screenplay that i'd written with Stephen romano i liked that a lot and then it just went into band. that we had taken some thought about maybe recasting we talked to the great ron perlman and he was interested but the funding had evaporated and unfortunately it just didn't come together you know i have subsequent i saw bruce and this year and uh, he received the time machine award and mm-hmm. um yeah, you know, I was I, there. I was able to see that. Oh, that's right. Of course. What am I yeah, saying, I thought... Mick? We were there together. At well, Sit- we're
0: telling the audience, not yeah. each other,
1: right? <laughs> right. I remember because well, the reason I didn't see you that much is you were stuck in the jury room watching yes. uh, dozens and dozens of movies. Um, but in any case, so he, uh, you know, he seems interested that maybe we could do something. I know that uh, Joe Lansdale um, has been working on a uh, you know a sequel project. So right. look, Elvis is eternal. uh, It'll be around forever, and hopefully one day something will happen. Awesome.
0: That would be great. Okay, you can reach us on Twitter, at PostMortemMG, one word, of course. And then don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and leave feedback so we can find ways to make the show even better. Thanks for listening to PostMortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.